When we voluntarily disobey God, we're not giving Him the proper respect. That is a sign of pride, and God will judge pride. Whenever a person chooses to disobey God, they are telling God that He is not in charge of them and that He is not important enough to be listened to. That's the problem with pride. Hello and welcome to another message from the Latter Rain Ministries, where we're dedicated to sharing Jesus Christ and His truth with the world. Today we'll be talking about disobedient behavior. There are things in this world that need to be respected and adhered to so that a person can live in relative peace. And some of those things are enforced typically by laws which in turn are upheld by some physical power. For instance, all governments today posture and negotiate based on the power they possess. But can you willfully disobey God and get away with it? And there, every single person, no matter who they are, is subject to what God decides in eternity because nothing in this world affects his eternal reign and authority. Today's message is inspired on Esther chapter 1. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, hallowed and glorified and exalted be your name. Your kingdom come, Lord God, and your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. Blessing be to you, O Lord, for you are worthy to be praised and exalted, O Lord, above all things and above everyone, for there is no one like you, O Lord God. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, I pray for your forgiveness, and I pray for your ongoing mercy. I pray, Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, that you may help us, O God, to be attentive to your word, Help us, O Lord, to have soft hearts. Help us, O Lord, to be obedient to you, to understand that your will is life to us, and that, Lord God, there is only eternal life in you. Help us to understand that you must be the standard for us so that we could live forever. To you be all the honor and the glory and the praise. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Today's key passage can be found in Esther chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace. They were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars. And the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory. For so the king had offered all the officers of his household that they should be according to each man's pleasure. 
Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Biktha, Abaktha, Zethar, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown, in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice, those closest to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Memukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence, who had ranked highest in the kingdom. What shall we do to Queen Vashti, according to the law? Because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs. And Memukin said before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in the, all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women, so that they will despise her husbands in their eyes when they report. King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus there will be excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him, and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it will not be altered, that Vashti shall no longer come before King Asuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree which he will make is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wise will honor their husbands, both great and small. And the reply pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Memukin. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. We read today of something that was quite unacceptable in that day, and that could have cost Vashti's life, and that is the problem of disobedience. The king had called upon his queen because he wanted to show everyone how beautiful she was. He was proud of her. There were no evil intentions in his heart. Actually, quite the contrary, he was in a very good mood. There had been celebration. Everyone was having a good time. And he simply was so proud of her that he just wanted to show her off. But Vashti disobeyed the king. And we don't see her having a reason for shaming the king through her disobedience. There was no explanation. So we can reasonably infer that she didn't show up because she simply didn't feel like showing up. And so it's easy to understand that there was rebellion and pride in her heart, and that's why she didn't show up. Now, how can we arrive to that conclusion? We need to understand the time and protocols of that day. Back then, there were mainly kings or emperors, or basically absolute forms of ruling, where whatever the commanding authority said had to be done. There were no options. If you didn't do as the ruler said to do or not do, you paid with your life. So quite simply, if the king had asked for the queen to show up, if she valued her life, she should have showed up. And so by this, we can tell that there was just defiance in her. 
She thought that the king was going to forget that he was king because he loved her. We can see that he loved her because he didn't kill her, even though she deserved to die. Now, some of you might say, and especially going by today's mentality, what do you mean she deserved to die? She should have done however she pleased and nothing should have happened to her. She's not his slave. And so we need to dig deeper to see the implications of what Vashti's defiant act could have caused. As we explained before, the king's word, basically whatever he asked anyone to do, had to be done. There needed to be strict obedience. Why? Because that was a sign of his power. The moment anyone defied the king, and there wouldn't be any consequences for such defiance, it would be taken as a sign of weakness, as a sign that his own subjects didn't respect him. And others, like other kingdoms, would be encouraged to invade. Just think, if a king doesn't even have a wife that listens to him, what power does he really have? Does he command respect? So Vashti shamed the king publicly. She tried to show the ruler of the world at that time that she was stronger than him. And that was directly and or indirectly sending a message that anyone could do whatever they wanted with this man. And of course, we're also told explicitly that the leaders were concerned about the problem that would surge in all families if other women were inspired to do the same to their husbands. This was clearly a big problem in many different respects. That's why we can even see that the king had a very good heart. Despite the shame brought upon the king by Vashti through her defiance and rebellious attitude, he just replaced her. But in all reality, if it were any other king, she should have been killed. They would have made an example of her, that no one's defiance would be tolerated, no matter how beautiful she was or how special she thought she was. And this is how we can tell something else and the reason for why Vashti acted the way she acted. She must have known that the king loved her or at least valued her deeply. That's the only reason we can suppose that she felt she could get away with such defiance. She probably thought to herself, the king is not going to do a single thing to me because I am beautiful or because he loves me or whatever reason she may have had in her head. She basically must have felt like she was entitled to do what she wanted. Even publicly shame the king and refuse his call. And so at minimum, we can see that there was an evil in her heart. Rather than responding well to how much the king valued her, she saw his valuing of her as a sign of weakness, and she tried to take advantage of his goodwill and appreciation for her. She felt entitled, and she was spoiled, pure and simple. Now, some might say, what does this have to do with today's world? We could draw from this the importance of keeping a respectful relationship between husbands and wives, and that if a woman has a well-intentioned and loving husband, that she shouldn't take advantage of him and mistreat him, that her husband is not a footstool to fulfill her every whim. And this happens quite a bit, more than you think. And of course, that feminism destroys God's design for marriage and obliterates the family structure. So even though these things are important, we won't dig into them. And so we will draw much more significant points from this that applies to everyone that claims to have a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing we can take a look at is the fact that the Bible refers to his people as his future bride. All of those that proclaim to have faith in Christ form part of the universal body of the church or the bride. And God many times makes reference to his relationship with the church 
as a husband and wife relationship. And so each of us forms part of that relationship. Now, as part of the relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, we enjoy the great love that God feels for us. And we can attain great things through God's incredible and unmerited mercy and grace. These are all wonderful things that we have. But does that entitle us to take advantage of God's love? Does that incredible privilege give us the right to take God's love for granted? And worse, does it empower us to treat him as a servant, as someone that exists to please us and to do as we tell him to do? Does it even mean that now that we find grace through the Lord for salvation, that we can sin and disrespect God however we choose? And the answer is absolutely not. There is absolutely nothing in the Bible that supports disrespecting God and not treating him as he deserves to be treated. Yet most try to take advantage of his goodness. Most treat him as a servant, as a do-boy, if you will. Most take his love for granted. And unfortunately, most people see his grace as a license to sin. And all of these are big problems. And God will judge these things in the end if a person does not turn away from their pride. And so just because God loves us and holds us in high esteem through his son, Jesus Christ, does not give us any entitlement or right to disrespect him. And here's something that most so-called believers, especially those that teach things that go against biblical principle, things that justify sin and rebellion, and that is that God will judge his people for willful sinning. Even though a person may believe that they are a child of God, if they do not value God, if they disrespect him, if they don't treat him as they should, and of course, give in to the practice of sin, they will face judgment and it will be a terrible thing. We must always remember this. God is love, but he is also holy and consuming fire. The one does not invalidate the other. That's why we must love God, but also fear him. This is what the word says about this in Hebrews chapter 10. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fire indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him, speaking of God, who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so it should be pretty clear to us that we cannot play with God. We cannot mistreat him and think that we are going to get away with it. We cannot do as we please and disobey him and think that he is just going to let things go. It's foolishness and it will not be tolerated. Here is the problem. When we voluntarily disobey God, we're not giving him the proper respect. That is a sign of pride and God will judge pride. Whenever a person chooses to disobey God, they are telling God that he is not in charge of them and that he is not important enough to be listened to. That's the problem with pride. 
That's the problem. When a person feels they can take advantage of God, when they think that they are entitled, when they take his love, goodness, kindness, and mercy, and treat these as a sign of weakness. Just because a bolt of lightning, if you will, doesn't strike a person when they wrong God at a given moment, doesn't mean that God is not going to do something later on if they persist in their rebellion. This is also what the word of God says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And so there is love in the Lord. But notice that the Apostle Paul mentions here the terror of the Lord. Terror is something fearful and dreadful. In other words, you should also be afraid of God about the fact that he is who he is and that he is capable of doing terrible things if you don't aim to please him, if you don't keep in mind that you are going to give an account. See how different the truth is from what many so-called preachers and teachers teach so commonly nowadays? There are many that say, God loves you and he will forgive you for everything. And no matter what you do, you have nothing to worry about. Even though we are given the opportunity of salvation, it's not a right or anything even close to that. That doesn't mean that we should not fear God, nor that we will not give an account. God is holy. And his holiness must be respected. God is the ultimate authority in the universe. He is the most powerful being in all of existence. And he will be that for all eternity. He is the great I am. And so what attitude do you suppose we should have for such a being? Does it even make sense to have any kind of pride before such a person? It is quite clear in the word of God that we need to obey him, that we need to do the will of the Father if we want to have eternal life. So repenting and converting from all sins and acknowledging and accepting Jesus Christ as the Lord of our lives is just the beginning. There must be a life of obedience that shows that we do treat the Lord Jesus Christ as the effective and literal Lord of our lives. For it is written, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So it is very clear, yes? So this concept that all you need to do is just believe in God and faith is the only thing that saves is wrong. We must repent and convert from all of our sins. We must acknowledge and accept Jesus Christ as the Lord of our lives, but also we must treat him as such until we breathe our last breath. Philippians chapter two, verse 11 says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And so we cannot take for granted God's love and mercy, nor our salvation. We must take care of our salvation by continually looking for the Lord, by looking to do his will and not looking to fulfill our own will. There is no room for pride when God asks us to do something, whether through his word or directly by divine guidance through the Holy Spirit. No one has the right to defy God. If a person persists in such defiance and disobedience and not taking care of their salvation, nothing good awaits them in the judgment. For it is also written, therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, 
and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will? Now, some might get into this discussion of whether a person loses their salvation or not after reading this passage. And to be perfectly honest, whether a person loses their salvation or never was saved to begin with is almost irrelevant when it comes to God's judgment in the end, because in either case, a person will be held liable for the truth they were exposed to and what they did with it. And in either case, there is something that must be done away with, and that is pride. Pride is what makes a person take God for granted. Pride is what makes a person defy and be disobedient towards God. And if that pride is never brought under the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, that pride will make a person wind up lost forever and ever, apart from God's eternal kingdom. That is the problem. We ultimately need to obey the Lord for our own good because God is the only one that is truth and he will judge us according to his truth. And so we must get rid of any lingering concept that somehow our opinion is what dictates reality. I cannot stress this enough. And the issue is that this is probably the most prevalent flaw within God's so-called people. That most people think that their opinion dictates reality. That what they choose to believe is what will take precedent over God and his truth. This is what the word of God has to say about obedience and how we need to do away with pride. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, it says, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. In Proverbs chapter 11, it says, When pride comes, and comes shame, but with the humble is wisdom. In Proverbs chapter 16, it says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. And in Daniel chapter 4, it says this, And those who walk in pride, he, speaking of God, is able to put down. Pride and disobedience before God will only bring about eternal damnation upon a person. That's the bottom line. We saw this Vashti that was so inclined to believe that nothing would happen to her if she challenged the king and shamed him publicly. But regardless of whatever she chose to believe, she was replaced. And there was nothing she could do to change that. Something similar will happen to people that choose to disobey the Lord, but actually far worse. If they choose to challenge God in his ways, if they choose to have pride before the Lord and dismiss his truth, nothing good will ever come out of a person showing disrespect for the Lord. God is God. And it is in our best interest to look to do things his way and our insignificant opinions and unfounded illusions of grandeur will not be able to stand before the mighty and eternal throne of God. God will not ask us for our opinion and judge us accordingly. He will simply look to see if a person did his will while living or not. And that, that is all that should matter to us for our own good, just like the Lord Jesus Christ said it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. We are living during a time where most so-called believers rely on their own opinions or on whatever seems appealing to them 
and hold that as the standard that God will choose to justify them. And as such, they lead lives that are completely out of God's will, doing things that are blatantly sinful. Most people justify their sinful lifestyles based on personal opinion and self-created theology. They treat the things of God like a menu. But God is not a menu. And of course, the Lord is no fool. He sees everything, especially the intention that every person has in their heart, and he will act accordingly in the final judgment. For it is written, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Ladies and gentlemen, despite whatever you choose to believe based on your own opinion, there is a final judgment where we will all stand, even those that proclaim to have faith in Christ. Every single person will be present that day and will stand before the greatest throne that has ever existed and will give an account for all of their actions. And there will be certainly no pride in that moment, no cutting a deal or negotiation with God at that time. God is not going to ask anyone for their opinion. There is no voting then. In the eternal kingdom of God, there is no democracy. God is God, and that is all there is, and He is completely sovereign, completely in charge, and there is no refuting any decision he makes. There is no appeal process. So for your own sake, you should forget about all of the erroneous doctrines and cheap philosophies that are held in high esteem in this temporary and passing world because they have no bearing in the kingdom of God. If you want to know how to enter the kingdom of God, you must live life according to God's way and not your way. Otherwise, it is simply contempt and rebellion. And who can challenge the God of heaven? People can feel all the pride they want in whatever sinful thing they want, but that will not earn them anything in eternity. The Bible teaches only one way to salvation, and that is complete repentance and conversion from all sins, not just some sins, acknowledging and obeying Jesus Christ as the Lord of their lives and living to fulfill the will of the Father. This is the only way to salvation. There is no other path and there is no room for opinion and least of all, disobedience and pride. If you do these things, you will enter God's kingdom. If you refuse to, you will not be allowed by God himself to enter his kingdom. The concept is really simple. So for your own good, I urge you to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ so you can in fact have the eternal life and reward God has in store for those that love Him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, blessed are you, O Lord, for your goodness and your mercy, because you are so good to us. Thank you for the opportunity of salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, O Lord, because you are willing to forgive our sins when we repent and turn away from them. Thank you, Heavenly Father, because you give us the gift of salvation, but only when we accept Jesus as the Lord of our lives. And thank you, O Lord, that you have made a clear way of salvation through your Son by doing your will. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word because we don't need to guess at what is right and wrong. And thank you for your Holy Spirit that guides us to all truth. Heavenly Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you help us, O Lord, to be mindful 
that it does matter what we do with our lives. Heavenly Father, help us to be mindful that you saved us with a reason and a purpose, and that is to restore the original design that you made us with. We were designed and made and created to serve you. And even though sin has made us leave that original intent, you have given us the opportunity to come back to that and to form part of your kingdom. Heavenly Father, I give you thanks because you are good. To you be all the honor and the glory and the praise forever and ever. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Please join us again next time as we look into God's Word together. And if you have any questions or just need some prayer, please email us through our website. If you want to listen to other messages, you can go to our website or look for our podcast in the Apple iTunes store under The Latter Rain Ministries to subscribe. The Latter Rain Ministries is a self-supporting Christian ministry dedicated to sharing Jesus Christ and His truth with the world. The Lord is near. May God bless you.